Our scripture reading today is going to come from Acts chapter 3. It's a story that uh, we're going to get the fullness of when we finish this new sermon series. Uh, But we're going to get a a few words from Peter uh, proclaiming something about what has just happened on Holy Week. So I'm going to read in verse 17 uh, of chapter 3. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that the Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets, the word of the Lord. We are beginning a series about the greatest comeback, obviously about the comeback of Jesus from the dead, about resurrection and hope, uh, but how we all participate in that story and we all have our own version of what is to come back uh, from life that had no meaning, from life that had no hope, from from injury, from, a, from lack of health, whatever it is that your story is in God, it is a comeback to God's purpose and God's meaning for your life. And so when I was thinking about this series, I couldn't help but start with the image of maybe you're like me, that when you hear comeback, you immediately go into sports metaphors of the greatest comebacks of all time is, is, is a team down who, who comes back and wins. And if you watch the national championship of men's basketball recently, uh, you might think there was no comeback involved in that game. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty big massacre of just like this team. Baylor led the whole game, uh, and not just led, like they were up by a lot the whole game. And maybe we need to still console some of our, of our own in our midst who, who wish other teams had made it to the championship game. Uh, but Baylor won through and through in that game. Uh, But maybe you're like me and you heard the announcers afterwards kept talking about how Baylor had been rebuilt. And you might be like, what on earth were they talking about? Because they didn't, they kind of hinted around some things, but they didn't really talk in depth about why they were gushing about the fact that Baylor had been rebuilt and that the new coach had taken this team uh, to a championship when they had been in the kind of gutter of sports. And if you don't know their story, it is a massive uh, comeback for their program. In 2003, their program was in like the worst condition you could imagine. Like probably worse than whatever you would imagine. If you were just to guess how bad it was, it probably wouldn't even resemble this. But in 2003, a a player on the men's basketball team uh, was murdered. And murdered by a teammate. And like, there's no real words to get at how painful and how challenging that must have been and how that is of, uh, of to lose someone. Like to, to lose a young life is always challenging. To, use, to lose a young life unnecessarily to violence is challenging. To lose a young life at the result of someone else you know uh, is very challenging. And so uh, in, in the team world, everything is about that chemistry, that bond, that connection of teammates and like to have that fracture is like, how do you rebuild that situation? How do you put life back together again? And it wasn't just an isolated, painful moment. It was an extended one. 
as it would come out over the next few years as the investigation unfurled, um, yes, Carlton Dotson, the one who was on the team who murdered his teammate, uh, he pled guilty and had a 35-year sentence given to him, uh, and there's pain and tragedy around that. Um, but also the coach of the team at the time, uh, Dave Bliss, was involved in a lot of cover-ups. And it starts from the fact that he had paid for the tuition of some of his athletes. And so once you've done something wrong, you start wanting to hide from it. You start trying to cover it up. And so in the midst of a tragedy and violence, uh, now here he is going around trying to hide from the reality of what had been going on in their program. And so the story is really outlandish. Um, he even like called investigators and portrayed himself as the father of one of the athletes on the team to try to get the story the way that he wanted it to be. He told his athletes and his assistants uh, to talk about the victim who died and say that he was a drug dealer who was, that's how he got the money uh, to go to school and all of his kind of anomalies of his financials. Hey, talk about his reputation. T tell everybody that he was a drug dealer and, and try to tarnish uh, his, his, his reputation. And so there was a massive mess and painful situation uh, that the new coach walked into. And so like when you hear the announcers talk about what a great rebuild and how all of this, like this is the backdrop of that. Uh, and, and in a way, it kind of makes it feel like that the new coach, Scott Drew, like that he is the victorious one who, who has helped them make it from the depths of despair and brought them into a new time. Um, and we kind of have that impulse that we want to figure out who is the person that we celebrate as the hero of the story? Like who's the superhero who made this possible? And usually in the sports analogy, it's like in football, it's who's the quarterback that gets all of the celebration? Uh, maybe if you were down thinking about the NCAA tournament for our Michigan fans amongst us, you can think about Tom Brady and all of his comebacks. Uh, the most all time of coming down, back from more than 10 points down in a game. But ultimately, we end up elevating one person, that they're the superhero of the story, and we're the fans on the couch or on the, in the bleachers or wherever we are celebrating them on. And there's a way in which we bring that to the Easter story, that we become spectators not involved in the resurrection story of Easter. And we become spectators just cheering Jesus on, not actually participating in the life that Jesus is bringing about. And so there's some subtle ways that this comes about. Um, I've got a few images of some Western resurrection images that are uh, of how we typically think about Jesus. And one of those images um, is Jesus kind of standing up and the kind of guards and the soldiers are at his feet. And it's a, a picture of, of Jesus celebrating like resurrection and he's kind of standing there. Uh, and the feet of the soldiers are down below. Here's one of angels. You get like Jesus, like, hey, I, I'm victorious. It's almost a touchdown here, right? Um, but I'm, I, I'm victorious. And we become the people either celebrating or if we think about soldiers, we're the people like not sure what to do with it. Um, but we become spectators at the resurrection. But there's another image that comes from the Eastern tradition that you see all over, uh, and that one is a different picture of Jesus. And so in the Eastern image of Jesus, we have a different kind of painting that we see in a lot of churches, and 
For those who are far away, it's a picture of Jesus lifting up, a depiction of Adam and Eve. It's a depiction of Jesus lifting up humanity from the sarcophagus, from the tombs. It's the image that underneath Jesus in that image, like the gates of hell are knocked down, and it's hard to see, but there's also a devilish figure underneath him. That the resurrection is not just like, let's celebrate Jesus from afar, but what's happening is that humanity is raised up with Jesus, that we are a part of this resurrection, that we become one with Jesus, that we, uh, we move with him. And so we enter into this Easter story wondering about how do we think about the comeback from death, the comeback from sin, the comeback from all that was wrong in the world. Like, how do we participate in that story? Because for many of us, we've inherited a faith where it was simply, um, did you put the right color jersey on? Did you put the right hat on? Like, if I put the Christian hat on, that's all that there is to the story. I was just waiting for Jesus to come back. I don't need to do anything in this world. Like, I'm just waiting time until the time runs out, and then I celebrate when the confetti comes out. And then a lot of people then wonder, like, well, what on earth is the life of a Christian for then? But if you think about Jesus as having raised all of us, we all become a part of that story. We become a part of what God is doing in this world. And we have a mission. We have a purpose. And so I want to read again, uh, and we're going to talk through what Peter has to say for us in Acts chapter 3, and hear the story of how do we participate in that resurrection story. I love that this passage starts with, and now friends, and now friends. And some translations might say brothers, some might say brothers and sisters, but he's talking to people that he thinks are outside of having received and said yes to what God is doing in the world. He's talking to people who he's about to tell them to repent, And he calls them brothers and sisters, friends, whatever language you want to use there. Uh, And how many of us um, take that lens into the world, that the people that we minister to, the people that we speak to, the people that we uh, serve are not outsiders who are uh, simply enemies, who are uh, antagonistic, but that everyone you meet, that you can start out with, hey, friend, hey, brother, hey, sister, Let me tell you about what God has done and is doing. Friends, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking uh, about Good Friday. He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about uh, what violence was done to Jesus. And a little bit like Jesus of like this kind of like startling forgiveness that you can be on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing of like how to have that kind of heart for people that even the people who do the most wrong thing that you can imagine. Think about the tragedy that the Baylor team went through. Like you think about the pains that real people go through and say, I I know that you weren't acting out of a full perspective of what was going on in the world. I know you didn't fully understand the, the world, the situation, who you are, who God is. And we often want to fill in people's motivations, like they are the most maniacal bad guy you can imagine, that they have every intent to hurt you, to harm somebody, to do the wrong thing. But friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In this, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. So 
you didn't realize what you were doing. God knew what God was doing in the midst of you not knowing what you were doing. Uh, you take your worst day in which you didn't realize what you've done wrong. Somehow God is working in the midst of it and setting it right. I always love the image of uh, maybe you're a painter and you make a mistake and it feels like it's all ruined. And God is the painter on the other side having mirrored it, having changed it and transformed it and that it is now beautiful even when it seemed like it was a mistake. For, for Bob Ross fans, happy mistakes, right? Uh, that even when you acted out of ignorance and you've messed up and you've done the wrong thing, what you did wrong, somehow God has made work into the purposes of bringing life and goodness. And so God fulfilled what had been foretold through the prophets. Then he goes on, repent therefore and turn to God. Too often we write people off like there's no chance for change. And sometimes you might say this, not actually imagining change or not thinking things will ever be different. But like, what is it to say that hopefully? Hey, you've been going down the wrong path. God has been beautifully merciful in transforming that path in a way that brings life. But God is inviting you to turn from that path. You don't have to go off the cliff and wait for God to, to, to change that path for you. But turn to God. Repent. And for so many of us, we don't actually have an imagination that things will ever change. We don't think that maybe we, we will ever change. We don't think that our neighbor, our, our spouse, our parent, our child, our coworker. Like, what is it to be hopeful of actually inviting people into a new path, a new trajectory of life with God? Repent, therefore, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. That phrase was very interesting because, you know, sometimes we just take these metaphors and we just like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Sins are wiped out, move on. Um, but I like the kind of background of this image and how it's been used in the Old Testament. Often the way that this phrase would be used about being wiped out uh, was in a sense of like annihilation, of obliterating someone, of striking someone's name off of something. And so we have an example in Exodus 17 where it says, the Lord says to Moses, write this as a reminder in a book and recite it in the hearing of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There's this like, strike their name from the record, no one will remember them. Like, just like really uh, strikingly uh, grim pronouncement. Right, that your name will be removed from history. No one will remember you. You will be forgotten. And this kind of taking your name away is part of the background. Uh, but there's also a covering over that gets used in the Noah story. So the language about the flood, um, God says in Genesis 7, I have that flood that he makes. I will blot out from the face of the ground every living thing. This covering over image of destroying everything. And at the end of the story, God then says, I will never again cover over everything in this way. And so there's this language of like utter destruction that's a background in this covering over language. And yet, we, we get here to Acts, he's not saying this in a bad sense, he's not saying this in a destructive sense, he's saying that the sin is going to be blotted out. That the very things that bring harm are somehow going to be utterly wiped away and cleared from the record and no more. And that can be hard to imagine. 
if you actually get really deep into thinking about the ways you've harmed somebody, the ways you've hurt someone, for some of us that's manifested in your fear of a, a high school reunion, <laughs> of the fear of going back and be like, man, I gotta face the way I was. Uh, I'd like to just forget about it. But can you actually imagine God blotting out your sins and, for, and moving them from the record? I love how Paul talks about this elsewhere. In Colossians 2, here's what Paul says. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Of this moment of violence, of crucifixion, of, of pain, of violence, being a moment of actually God striking away where we can maybe understand that even the most violent thing we might do towards God, God will blot away that sin and make repentance possible, will invite you to turn from your ways, to, to be renewed in your mind, because we don't want to act in ignorance anymore. We want to understand things, but also to be renewed in our life, and our practice, the way we live in this world. And so Peter tells us that our sins have been blotted out, and he says that, from, he goes on from that to say, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I know a lot of people who have kind of condemned this world to like nothing good ever happens here. This is just a messed up place. I need to move on. I need to get out of here. I'm ready for God to take me away. Like this is just a messed up world. Um, but Peter here talks about the fact that even now, Times of refreshing come from God's presence. That there is a coolness of air. This, this phrasing gets used about like feeling like the wind come against your face. Of like a good drink of cold water and that refreshing feeling. That a breathing space, which is one of my favorite ways of translating this. A breathing space where you might find your breath. And that in the midst of whatever panic and fear and anxiety and stress and corruption or whatever is out there, that God has a breathing space for us. That there is life and there is opportunity and hope still happening here. Uh, that resurrection happens in this place, that it's, it's a, a bodily thing that people needed to see in that moment right then. It wasn't just a future thing, but a present thing for them. And they needed that breathing space. And we are supposed to be in the midst of helping provide more of that breathing space. Like the more who say yes to God and say, God, I, I change my way, I, I repent. Lord, save me. Lord, I don't know how to understand that what I've done wrong has been forgiven, but like, God, change my life. Let me be a person who brings your spirit around to bring breathing space to people to bring moments and glimmers of resurrection hope, uh, that we don't bring more violence and just pile it on, but we bring a life-givingness uh, to every interaction that we have in this world. And so the church becomes communities of breathing spaces, communities where we create a new atmosphere with God's spirit around us, and we transform the world. And we often think about transforming the world in the negative sense, about pollution and like, uh, you know, polluting the atmosphere around us. Well, what is it to bring in God's healing presence wherever we go? And so Peter goes on 
Uh, Let's recap it here. Repent, therefore, turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Uh, I want to pause again on that. You, You might not think times of refreshing may come for you, and I just want to give you the invitation for that Easter hope that whatever you're going through, might, there might be a time of refreshing for you. And there might be some hope. There might be some breathing space. And I, I don't want you to, to fall into to doubt so much, into pessimism so much, uh, and pain and depression so much that you can't see that breathing space still being offered if we turn to God. So having that been offered to us, it goes on to say, um, that God may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. There's a lot going on here and a lot more than we can fully get into, but uh, there's this notion in this text that God has a grand imagination and picture that all things are meant to be restored that all things are meant to be healed and renewed, and that we are in this waiting because not everybody has said yes, not everybody has been transformed, not everybody has taken part in this breathing space. And so there's a way in which this restoration of all is in the midst of this invitation, of this waiting, saying, God keeps being the loving prodigal son's father, ready to run to your arms, And people keep saying, ah, maybe tomorrow. Ah, I can't believe in any of that. Uh, There's no life there. I'm going to find it on my own. And this offer of, trust me, there's a breathing space for you here. And the offer keeps happening, the offer keeps happening, and we keep having a world that resists and fights and says, no, no, I know what's best. If you're a parent and you've ever tried to give your kids medicine, when they're little and they just fight it and protest it and say, no, 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 no. And you know that a relief is about to come if they would just say yes to it. And that pain of like, what will it take to get you to say yes? And we kind of live in the tension. And I know that different Christians have different ways of how you talk about this. But like, uh, we live in a tension of we imagine through scripture and through teaching that, that God wants all to live, that God wants no one to perish, that God wants every knee to bow, every tongue to confess, that God wants all things to be restored. And yet we're struggling with the tension that not everybody says yes. And like Paul's struggling with, he has so many of his brothers and sisters that he grew up in his faith that is like, why can't you see this? And, and he's so struggling with what to do with people who say no uh, to the gospel. And we struggle in the midst of this of how is it uh, that the loving God who wills that all things might be restored, and yet we know that we have a lot of cold, hard hearts that don't want uh, to say yes to even good things that come our way. Like, how will this be rectified? How will this be made right? And a little bit like resurrection, Easter hope, we don't know fully. We proclaim that God's will and God's plan and God's vision will take place, that it will eventually rule. How do we get from there to from where we are is a little mysterious. Uh, because we often want to struggle with this of saying, 
Love requires people to participate willfully. And what is it for God to make his way happen without me saying yes to it? And we're like, well, we need people to say yes. We need people to repent. Um, But ultimately, we have a Christian hope that everything might be restored. Everything might be renewed. God's vision for a good world might come to pass. And we are in the midst of finding breathing spaces where that might happen. We're in the midst of finding a little bit of glimmers of hope where tombs are emptied. But we still live with people, uh, and sometimes us, being on the fence of saying yes to what God might be doing in our lives. And so God, like Jesus in those paintings, is like lifting you up. And how many of us say, yeah, I'm okay on the mat a little bit longer. I got this, I'll get up, I, you know, I, I can handle this. But how many of us are willing to repent, to turn to God, to say yes to being raised with him? And I want to read for you, because I think this is a good glimpse of the human condition of where many of us fall. Uh, and it's the story of Moses with Pharaoh in Exodus. And it's going to use that language that we've been talking about, about a breathing space. Um, but in the midst of the plagues... Uh, Pharaoh and Moses have a conversation because the plagues are getting too much. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, Pray to the Lord to take away these frogs from me and my people, and I will let your people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He's like, hey, enough, enough. Pray to God that these frogs will go away. And Moses says to Pharaoh, Kindly tell me when I am to pray for you and for your officials and for your people, that the frogs may be removed from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow, which is already weird. (laughs) When should I pray that this might be taken away from you? Tomorrow. Uh, And so many of us are in that spot of like, you know, I want healing, but I kind of like my mistakes. I kind of like my addictions. I kind of like the the problems in my world. I I don't, maybe tomorrow. And so he, he tells Moses tomorrow. And Moses says, as you say, So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frog shall leave you and your houses and your officials and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs that he had brought upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses requested. The frogs died in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank." But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, that there was a breathing space, that there was a moment of relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. There's a a danger for all of us, a temptation. One, to push off hope in life. Maybe I'll live for God tomorrow. But also when God brings blessings and brings moments of healing in life, to say, ah, you know, this is kind of all I need. I don't need any more of this. I've got things handled. I can do this on my own. And so the invitation is even in blessings, there's this temptation uh, to harden your heart and end up saying no to the fullness of what God offers us. And so throughout our sermon series that we're doing on The Greatest Comeback, we're going to read through figures Uh, like Paul, like Peter, like Thomas. We're going to read through the stories of people who say yes, who are integrated into the community of the faithful after doing wrong things, after having messed it up, having denied or doubted or, or been violent. 
And we are all invited into that. We are all invited to say yes now and not to delay. And so I hope that today might be a day that you don't put off asking God's breathing space and life and resurrection might be real in your life, that you participate in it and that you also invite that to those around you, that you come into spaces and you bring in offers of good news and bring in healing where there's often death and despair. And so we join in this Easter season in this message of hope that's not just about something that happened that we get to cheer on from afar, but is something that is happening continually in us too, that Christ wants to bring you from the death and despair and pain of this world. And so would you pray and join me as we respond to our Lord. Lord God, sometimes for those of us who are so used to um, your life in churches that maybe we've become numb to your good news, let us find a breath of fresh air, let us find a space to have a renewed spirit and a renewed yes to the continual transformation of our lives to be more like you. Lord, help us to have a transformed and renewing of our eyes so that we might see those around us, not as enemies, but all as potential brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to long for your healing of all things, even those that we struggle to love, even those we struggle uh, to be patient with. Lord, let your restoration of all things be true of all, but also of us. Lord, for those of us who uh, keep saying tomorrow, Lord, to you, who keep saying, Lord, uh, I'll live for you, but maybe tomorrow. Lord, I ask for an urgency in our lives that waiting isn't, isn't an option because we want your life and your healing here and now. Lord, let us be a community who says yes now. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.